Y'all turn with me to Haggai chapter 1, verses 2 through 9. I want to encourage you as you're turning there. Oh, by the way, Haggai is between Zephaniah and Zechariah. You got it, right? Okay. So, yeah, I just want to encourage you. This is the last uh, day, uh, that last Sunday of our series on All In. We're going to be talking about this All In challenge all throughout the year. We're not going to leave you hanging. But we're really encouraging and asking you to fill out a, a commitment card. The cards are in the pew rack in front of you. If you're willing to commit to these four challenges, this is not a guarantee you're going to do it. We're not going to call you halfway through the year, and if you're behind on your reading plan, we're going to throw you out of the church or something. This is not about accountability. This is about you just saying, Lord, there's a desire in my heart to go further in my relationship with you than ever before. And I hope that is your desire. So if you would, take one of those cards, fill it out if you haven't already, and drop it in the little, there's these little glass receptacles on uh, the all-in table out there. While you're there, if you haven't picked up all the sheets, pick up one. There's going to be a sheet that kind of summarizes what we're going to talk about today, but you still have to listen, okay? All right, you with me? So next week, we're going to start a new series on the book of Acts on what church is supposed to be. You ever been disappointed in church? Don't raise your hand. You ever been disappointed in church? Do you really want to know what church is supposed to be? Because you hear people say, well, you know, I wish my church had better music. I wish my church had better preaching. I wish my church had better this, better that. What should church actually look like? That's what we're going to talk about. The church as it was meant to be. What a church looks like when it's really all in. And why the church is so important. So we'll start that next Sunday. We're going to finish today talking about that fourth commitment on your all-in challenge. And I want to start by talking to you about history. That's my, one of my favorite subjects. If you hate history, just stick with me for a few minutes. I promise this isn't going to be as boring as some you've heard. So uh, you know that uh, we have a great reverence in our country for the founding fathers. Uh, and we say founding fathers, we should say fathers and mothers, because there were lots of women in that generation who sacrificed and did a lot to make us free as well. But the founding fathers of our nation... We build statues of them, we write books about them, we name cities and universities and our sons and daughters after them. But a lot of us don't really ever think about what those men and women risked. How, how dangerous it was what they were doing. These were people who were subjects of the King of England and they were declaring themselves traitors. Literally saying, I am no longer your subject. I am going my own way. They were banking on an army of farmers to be able to beat the most powerful military force in the world at the time. And if it didn't happen, all of them would be hanged as traitors. Every single one of them. I mean, when those men signed their names to the Declaration of Independence, July 4th, 1776, they were signing their own death warrants. Unless something really unlikely happened. So think about that for a moment. There, there's, a, there's a founding father we don't often, we probably haven't heard of, don't often think of. His name was Thomas Nelson. Nelson was a very wealthy man. And so he used his wealth to help finance the American, the colonial military efforts. Lots of times George Washington's troops wouldn't have had food in their bellies or bullets in their rifles if, the, if it hadn't been for Thomas Nelson giving up his own money to, to fund the, the effort. Um, now, later on in the war, when the Battle of Yorktown was approaching, General Cornwallis, who was the commander of the English, he did a very shrewd thing. He was a very smart man. He claimed Thomas Nelson's home as his personal headquarters. He, he basically kicked out the Nelson family and occupied that home because his reasoning was, this is the home of their great benefactor. They would never fire on his house, therefore I am safe inside here. 
And so as the battle raged, Thomas Nelson went up to General Washington and he pointed to his house on the hillside and he said, fire away. And so the Americans turned their guns on Thomas Nelson's home and leveled it to the ground. Because Nelson thought, I'm all in for this. I'm going to die if we don't win. What difference in that case would my house make? That's what it means to be all in. That's why our founding fathers and mothers won such an unlikely victory because they were absolutely committed. Fighting against soldiers who were just paid to do what they were there to do. We, as a, as a ministry staff last fall, when we were thinking and praying about how to lead the church in the coming year, what should be our goal and our focus, we kept thinking, what would it look like if our entire church, every single member, took a step forward in their commitment to Christ? What would it look like if, if we became all in for the Lord? Now, don't worry. I don't think anybody's house is going to get blown up. I really doubt that's going to happen. If it does, it's not my fault. I'm just, I'm just disclaiming it right now. But, but what if? I mean, every believer in this church, people who have been saved for 60, 70 years, people who just got saved this year, people who are mature in the faith, who know every book of the Bible, who, who have studied, who have learned, who have done the spiritual disciplines, and people who are just getting started, don't even know anything. If every single person, wherever they are in their walk with Christ, took one giant step forward in their commitment to Him, what would that do to our church? We're talking about a church that where seven to 800 people gather every week, and more are members and come and go, what if all of them were all in? We really want to see what will happen. And that's why we've come up with these four challenges. I mean, think about it. If people study the Word of God, the whole book, not just the parts we enjoy, not just the parts our pastor and our Sunday school teacher bring up for us, but the whole thing, even the hard parts, even the parts we tend to avoid, what would that do as we renew our minds? Through, through interaction with His Word? What, what if we all prayed for every lost person we personally know? Every week, we're naming them before God. That's going to change us. That's going to make us more focused on the kingdom of God and on, on how many people need Him and how it's our responsibility to show them His love. What if all of us, instead of just praying for missionaries, instead of just giving for missions, we actually went out and did missions? At the end of the service, you'll have an opportunity. We have the same tables out we had last week where there's lists of ministry opportunities, mission opportunities outside the walls of our church that you can sign up to get more information about. You're not committing to do these ministries. You're saying, I want to know more about the trip to Columbia. I want to know more about Mission Conroe. I want to know more about these different ministries. Well, what if what if every single one of us was hands-on engaged in ministry to people who don't know Jesus, sharing His love with them in some way? And what if, what if this year we committed to generosity? What if this is the year that every one of us gave more to God's kingdom, more of ourselves than we ever have before? That's what I want to talk about today. So, we're in the book of Haggai. Now, I, just real quick survey. Raise your hand if you've never, as far as you can remember, never heard a sermon out of Haggai in your whole life. Okay, that's pretty good. Raise your hand if you've never heard of Haggai in your life. I like honest people, right? I mean, the rest of you, you're lying before the Lord. That's okay. Uh, you know, God forgives. That's why grace exists. So Haggai was a prophet who lived about 500 years before Jesus. And, and just so we're clear what prophets did. Because I think there's a misunderstanding, even among Christian people, that prophets were people who went around predicting the future. 
And while sometimes a prophet in his message would say something where God had given him some insight and he could say, here's what's going to happen, that wasn't the primary goal or the primary work of prophets. A prophet was essentially um, a messenger from God. So put it this way, we are fortunate to live in a time where we have the whole Bible. There is no more scripture to be written. God's canon is closed. And therefore, we have the entire word of God right here. And we live in in a country which is free and prosperous enough that we have access to the Bible. I've got probably half a dozen of these. And I've got it on my smartphone. You probably do too. If you don't, you need to download it. We've got access to the word of God all the time. People in the Old Testament era did not. So people in Haggai's time, for instance, they probably, none of them probably owned a copy of any part of the scriptures. And even if they did, it would be just a scroll here or, or, or a letter of a prophet there. They, heard, they learned from their rabbis. They learned the oral tradition, but they didn't have it. And so when God wanted to speak to a particular nation or group or person, say a king or a person he really wanted to use in a powerful way, he would send a prophet. A prophet was like a messenger from God. Or another way to look at it is God, uh, the prophet was like the cell phone in your hand that God used to call a person. And the prophet would go to a person and say, listen up, this is what God says. And then it would be on that person to either obey the words of the prophet or to reject the word of God. So that's what Haggai is here to do. And Haggai's prophecy in his book is very unusual for two reasons. The one we're going to look at today in chapter one, two reasons it's unusual. Number one, Unlike most prophecies in the Bible, we can pinpoint to the exact day when it happened. And that's because Haggai writes in the first verse that it was the second year of Darius, the king of Persia, the first day of the sixth month. And we know that that was August 29th, 520 BC. Now, the second unusual thing about Haggai's prophecy, you're going to have to wait till the end of the sermon for that. That's something to wait for. But let me give you some background before I read these words from the prophet Haggai. Here's the situation that was going on. Some of you know, if you don't know yet, you'll discover it as you read the scriptures this year. There was a time when the nation of Israel ceased to exist. So Israel was gone, Assyria had invaded and carried them off. All that was left was the little country of Judah, just one tribe of the Jews. And then Babylon invaded them, conquered them. Uh, knocked down the walls of the city of Jerusalem, killed thousands. The people who survived were carried away into exile in a distant land. And most significantly of all, from a Jewish standpoint, their temple in Jerusalem was demolished. No more temple. And so after decades, what happened was there was a regime change. The, The Persians overcame the Babylonians. So now the Jews had a new boss. Their boss was Cyrus, the Persian king. Cyrus was a benevolent dictator. He said, why are we cramming all these people from all over the world into this one country trying to make a melting pot? It's not working out. Let's send everybody home. They'll still be our subjects. They'll still pay us taxes, but they can go home. They can build their cities. They can worship their own gods and everybody will be happy. So that's what he did. Darius, who's spoken of in the first verse here, he came along after Cyrus. He had the same policy. So during Darius' reign, a group of Jews led by a man named Zerubbabel, there's a biblical name we don't name our sons after, right? Zerubbabel, who was a direct descendant of King David, led a detachment of Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and to rebuild the temple. They started work on the temple and then they stopped. That was 16 years before. And now, here it is 16 years later, and Haggai shows up to speak these words to the Jews. And by the way, 
they weren't doing well. Zerubbabel, his governor, Joshua, the high priest, these were two men who were probably very stressed out, probably probably sleepless at night, wondering, God, why are we not thriving? We've obeyed you in coming home. Why are we not doing well? So Haggai comes to give them the answer from God. Verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says the time has not come for the Lord's house to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You put on clothes but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Now, first question, why is God so intent on having the temple rebuilt? Why is that so important to God? You need to understand what the temple was. When I was growing up and I learned about the temple in Jerusalem, I just assumed it was like their church, their church building, but it's not. The building we live in, or the building we're sitting in right now, First Baptist Conroe's building, is a beautiful building. Thank God for the men and women who gave so generously to build this beautiful facility, but you know what? If we didn't have this, We could meet in a school building. We could meet in a strip mall. We could meet out in the open. We could meet in someone's home. Be a big home. But we could meet anywhere and God would still be there. We don't need a special building. When we're fortunate enough to have one, we're thankful for it. I love being on Main Street with that steeple sticking straight up so when people come downtown... Some people come downtown because they really need Jesus, right? They're, they're going to court for various reasons. Other people are downtown to work or to eat at a restaurant or to shop. They see that steeple and they're reminded of Jesus. I'm glad we're here. I'm glad we have this building. But we don't have to have the building. It was different for the Jews. God had told Moses, you put my dwelling place in my city and that is where you connect with me. In Moses' time, it was a tent. And then along came Solomon and he built a temple spectacular, glorious temple. And that building was the place where people met with God. You see, if I was an Israelite from 3,000 years ago, and I wanted to get right with my God, I had sinned in some way, or I knew that I needed to connect with Him in some way, I couldn't just go out and offer a sacrifice to Him. That's not my job. I had to take the best of what I had. I had to go to the temple in Jerusalem and give it to the high priest and he would offer it before the Lord and then my soul would be right with God. That's the way it worked. The temple was like the bridge between heaven and earth. It was like the place where God and man could meet. It was the bridge. It was the place where heaven and earth connected. The only place. It was absolutely essential for the Israelites and for anybody else to get right with God. And now the temple's been gone for decades. And the Jews finally get to come home. And they start the temple and then they stop. Why do they stop? Well, they had to build houses, right? And God's not mad at them for building houses. But notice it says, you're building your paneled houses 
while my house lies in ruins. That word paneled refers to luxury. What he's saying is, you didn't just build a shelter to, to protect your children. You're building palaces for yourself and you're leaving my home in ruins. You're putting your own needs, your own desires ahead of the kingdom of God. Now you may be sitting there saying, what does that have to do with us? Because I mean, after all, you just said we don't need a building. The building is extra. Let me tell you what it has to do with us. The truth is, this is not the temple, but there is still a temple on earth today. Did you know that? There's still a temple of God on earth today. It's not in Jerusalem. It's somewhere else. Let me show you. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So he's talking to us. All of us used to be strangers to God. We used to be outside of his family, and then God did the hard work of bringing us in. But now he goes on to say, You are also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Wait a second. So now the metaphors change. Now we're not part of a family. We're part of a building. We're like bricks. We're like paneling. We're all parts of a building God is putting together. He says, in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let me ask you something. In the Old Testament, God lived in the temple. Today, the Holy Spirit of God lives in who? In what? What? Us, that's right, we are the temple. Not just us individually, but us corporately. And not just First Baptist Conroe, but any group of people who calls themselves by the name of Jesus and follows His Holy Spirit, that is the temple of God. See, when we come together and we worship Him and then we go out into the world and we serve together, we are the bridge that unites human beings with God. God chooses to do His work through us. He doesn't do it any other way. God makes the church his plan A. And as far as we know, there's no plan B. God says, this is the bridge. You are the bridge. You go and you do my will and people will come into the family and be saved. So, if we are the temple, then Haggai would say to us, don't fail in your responsibility to build up my temple. Don't fail in your responsibility to contribute with all you have to the work of God. He, he, in fact, says two things in these verses we just read, and he'd say the same two things to us if he were here in the flesh. The first thing he says is, there will always be attractive reasons not to obey God, but obey Him anyway. And don't you know that first one's true? There will always be attractive reasons not to obey God. That was certainly true for the Jews when they moved back. You want to know why they, they waited 16 years and didn't build anything? Because... Because they had a difficult time. I mean, they left comfortable lives in Babylon where they had established homes and they had married off their children and they had grandkids and they, they had jobs and careers and, and, and things to do. And they left all that behind to come home and build a nation from scratch. Besides that, when they got there, it's not like the land was empty. People had moved in and taken over. They were the people we know as the Samaritans. And if you want to know why Jews and Samaritans hated each other so much, Nehemiah was written a hundred years after Haggai. Nehemiah says a hundred years after this, the Samaritans are still giving the Jews a hard time. Still trying to stop them from building the walls of Jerusalem. 
So I don't blame the Jews for having a hard time getting the temple project off the ground, but it had been 16 years. You've got a good enough house after 16 years. And yet they're still saying, Haggai quotes them, it's just not time yet. That's what it says in verse 2. It's just not time yet to build the house of God. You know when it's going to be an easy time to obey God? When it's going to be an easy time to give your all to Him? Never. Never. If you're waiting for a convenient moment, it's never going to happen. And we do the same thing, don't we? Oh, I'm going to start giving financially, but you know, when I get a better job, or when I get some of these debts paid off, or you know, when I pay off my car, or when I pay off my house, then, then I'll have enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start contributing with my time. I'm going to start volunteering my time. But right now, I've got, I've got these kids to raise. Or, or right now, my kids are a little older, but they're into all these activities, so I have to get there for them. Or my job's really stressful right now, and, and someday I won't have that stress. You know, I'm going to share my faith with people, but right now I just don't know enough of the Bible. Well, are you studying the Bible? Well, no, but... Yeah, I've got this friend and, and his life is spiraling downward. It's out of control. Uh, someone needs to confront him, but, but not me. It's just not a good time for me because I, I get really anxious when I have difficult conversations. There's never, ever going to be an easy, convenient time to do what God wants you to do. So do it now. You won't regret obeying the Lord. Second thing Haggai says to us, we're never more miserable than when we hold back our full commitment from Him. See, we think that people without Jesus are the most miserable people on earth. I disagree. I think the most miserable people are people who have Jesus but are holding back from Him because they know what they're missing. Because they've tasted something good and they're denying it to themselves. And these people in Haggai's time were doing that. They, they knew what God had promised. They took a great leap of faith to come home. This wasn't the whole group of the Jews. Most of the Jews stayed in exile. They came home. They did something wonderful, but somehow their commitment waned. Their commitment slacked off. And they were suffering. They were struggling. And, and when I read what Haggai says to them in verses 5-9, through nine, I can't help but think that if he were here in America in the 21st century talking to Christians today, he'd say the exact same thing things. Because I don't know if you know this or not. I don't know if you pay attention to the news. But the life expectancy in our country right now is actually declining. And that's the first time that's happened in this country in decades. The people who study these things say it's mostly because of opioid addiction and suicide. They also say that rates of depression and loneliness and anxiety have never been higher in our country than they are right now. You know, the funny thing is, not funny, ha-ha, but the ironic thing is, the generation of my grandparents, if you're a millennial, the generation of your great-grandparents, they lived through a Great Depression. There were times they thought they were going to starve to death. They lived through a world war. Many of them went and stormed beaches and risked their lives, and some didn't come home. They lived through incredibly difficult times. As they grew older, they lived through times where they thought any day the Soviet Union could bomb us into rubble. And yet, that generation was so much happier than our generation. I mean, what do we have to stress out about? Doggone it, my iPhone battery keeps draining too fast. And they're going to raise the rates on Netflix. How am I supposed to binge watch stuff? And yet, 
we with all our affluence, all our freedom, we're depressed, we're discouraged, we're taking our own lives. Why? Why is it this way? We have food, so much food, we have to pay people to help us lose weight. I mean, that's how affluent we are. People in third world countries are like, what? You pay people to help you lose? I don't get it. We, we have food aplenty, but we're still hungry. We have so many clothes, our closets are jammed. We have to go to uh, the container store and get closet organizing systems to fit all our clothes and shoes, but we're still cold. We've got so much money. We put so much money in our pockets, our grandparents would think it was a fortune, but we're flat broke, just like the people of Haggai's time. Why? Same reason, verse 9, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own home. We were made to know God intimately. We were, known, we were made to pursue Him with all of our hearts. Instead, we're trying to find joy in everything but Him. If we approach Him at all, it's so He'll help us get the stuff we want instead of seeking Him for who He is. We were made to be part of God's temple, His body, Spreading His love around the world. Changing the planet. And instead, we're building palaces for ourselves and we're miserable. So, just like in Haggai's time, it just wasn't working. And just like Haggai said to them, I say to you, consider your ways. Take a good hard look at your life and say, what is it that's not working here? What am I actually contributing to the work of the Savior I claim to follow? What, what part do I play? How do I help? If every single member of this church gave as much of themselves as I do, would we be better or worse? Now, cards out on the table. You don't have to give to First Baptist Church Conroe in order to give to the Kingdom of God. There are probably dozens of Bible-preaching, Jesus-honoring churches right here in Montgomery County, thousands throughout the world. There's all kinds of parachurch organizations that are doing fantastic work for God. Anything you give to the ministry of God's kingdom is a blessing. Let me just tell you, because I'm not responsible for any of those. I'm just responsible for this one. Let me tell you why I think this is a good place to contribute to God's work, okay? Here's my promise to you. I'm, I know I'm not the best preacher on earth or anywhere close, but I promise you every Sunday, whether it's me in the pulpit or somebody else, every Sunday you're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, an opportunity for people to be saved every single time. You're not going to hear, you're not going to hear my political opinions and you're not going to hear my philosophies about life and society. You're not going to hear 10 tips to make your money work better because frankly, I don't know anything about that. But you're going to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to be in a church where children and teenagers hear the word of God every week and are challenged to grow. They're not being entertained. They're not playing twister. They are being challenged to grow as disciples of Jesus. And it's happening. You're going to be in a church where marriages are strengthened, where families are resourced, where older adults are treasured. They're placed on a pedestal and we listen to their wisdom because they've paid their dues, and they have followed the Lord longer than we have. You're going to be in a church where we believe in the unity of God's people, where we don't destroy that. We're going to be in a, you're going to be in a church where we believe that the gospel needs to go out, that people's felt needs need to be met, 
in order for them to hear about Christ's love. And that's why we feed the homeless on Tuesdays. And that's why we teach English to people who are new to this country and and need to know the language so they can make their way. That's why we help families in transition get back on their feet. That's why we do all kinds of other ministries, some of which you'll see out there. Why we support missionaries who are planting churches and spreading the gospel in other countries. That's why we are going to start ministries over the next three years to partner with our local city government, to reach out to a local neighborhood and adopt a local school. And, And I think this is most important. The direction, the trajectory of this church, we know where it's headed, and that is toward more and more becoming focused on one thing and one thing only. And it's not becoming a bigger church so I can have a bigger platform so I can be all famous. And it's not protecting a few old traditions that just make us feel comfortable. And it's not, it's not separating the holy people from the unholy people. It's making disciples. That's what our goal is, and that's going to be our focus And we believe that the more we become a church that's about making disciples of Jesus Christ, those who are saved, helping them grow, those who don't know Jesus, helping them come to know Christ as they see the difference He's made in our lives, we believe that's going to mean that lives are going to be touched, families are going to be healed, and a whole community is going to get a taste of how good our God is. And they're going to want more. And I think that's worth contributing to. I think that's worth being a part of. So consider your ways. Again, think about what can my contribution be. If you are a guest of this church today, I am not talking to you. Please understand. I hope you're making a contribution somewhere, but I'm not asking you to give to this church. But if you've joined this church, if you've covenanted with this church, if you said this is the body of Christ where I want to be a part, what are you contributing? And listen, full disclosure, I don't know what anybody gives except me. Frankly, I don't know what I give. Carrie writes the checks. So I don't really even know what I give. I just know the percentage. So we as a, as a ministry staff, we keep ourselves out of the loop on that. We don't want to know who gives what. But in a family this size, I'm sure there are people who don't give anything. And maybe you're one of those. And this would, this would be a great year for you to say, it's time for me to step up and start giving. Something that starts with a dollar sign, Right? That's some of the giving, some of the contribution we're talking about. It's time for me to make my contribution. For some of you, you give sporadically. You give every once in a while when you've got a little something extra or when it occurs to you. Maybe this is the year where it's time for you to sit down if you're married with your spouse or if you're single, just with yourself and say, okay, what am I going to give? When am I going to give it? How am I going to give it? For me and Carrie, it's worked best for us to just talk to our bank and and, and set up a system where they send a check to the church every time I get paid. Because otherwise, we'll forget. Otherwise, we'll be out of town and we won't give. So I recommend that to you. For some of you, you've been giving uh, systematically, but you've never tithed. You know, the Bible talks about God's standard for giving being the tithe, a tenth of what you make. In ancient Israel, it was a tenth of the crops you brought in. For us, for me, it's a tenth of the money I make. And I know that seems like a lot, and it is. Maybe this is the year you could sit down and, and do the hard work of budgeting and saying, what cuts would we need to make to be obedient to God in this? Let me just give you my own personal testimony. My parents raised me this way, so I don't get any great credit for doing this. But from the start, when Carrie and I got married, we started giving a tenth of what we made, which wasn't much. There was a year when our daughter was, was newborn and, and Carrie was staying home with her, and I was making $18,000 a year. And even in the 90s, when I'm talking about, that wasn't much. And yet, we had plenty. 
I mean, we didn't suffer in any way. We were blessed throughout our marriage, and we've been married nearly 27 years, the only time I can think of where we struggled financially was a period of time when, for no good reason at all, we just stopped tithing. We got behind, we quit, and all of a sudden, all the struggles started. This is not a plan to get rich. Don't, don't hear what that and what I'm saying. I'm just saying, try God in this and see if He's not faithful. Some of you already tithe, and you might be thinking, you know, I could give more. I could, I could tithe to the church's budget, and I could give a little extra to for the mission and help them pay off this debt. I, some of you are saying, you know, I could, I could give more to the budget. The, the truth of the matter is, this church is growing numerically, which I love, but this past year we had to cut our budget. So we had to do less ministry with more people. And it would be great, I think, if we all stepped up, and next summer when we're planning next year's budget, we could budget more, more ministry. Let's just see what God does. Maybe you sit down and you pray, Lord, I want to commit to generosity. And after praying, you, you just decide it's not money that he wants me to give more of. I'm already giving what he wants me to give in that realm. I, I need to give more time. I'd say, I mentioned this last week, and it's just a staggering number, but Alan did the math and discovered that it, every week it takes 225 people, volunteers and staff alike, to put on a Sunday morning service, two services and a life group, and a life group time. 225 people volunteering. And that doesn't even count all the committees that help us administrate the church that, and all the midweek ministries we do. So there is a place for you to volunteer your time. If you aren't volunteering right now and you're a member of this church, find a place. It can be done. There's lots of room for you to be a part of this church's life. So, let me just close with this. I started at the beginning. I said there were two interesting, unusual things about Haggai's prophecy. One was we know the date it was preached on. The second one's a lot more significant. The second thing that's unusual about Haggai's prophecy, they actually obeyed it. See, when you read the Scripture this year, you get to those prophetic books, you're going to see most of the time when a prophet got up and delivered a message, most of the time the people rejected it. Sometimes they killed the prophet. They rejected it so much. But when Haggai preached this message, when he said go up into those mountains and cut down trees and bring them back down and build this temple, they actually did it. And so chapter 2 of Haggai is very different than chapter 1. Chapter 1, he sounds like a cranky old guy, but in chapter 2, he is happy, he is overjoyed, and he gives a prediction that is beautiful. He says, standing in front of this brand new temple, he says in chapter 2, verse 6, this is what the Lord Almighty says, in a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present home will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace. So what is he talking about? The second temple is going to be greater than the first. See, scholars will tell you the second temple didn't hold a candle to the first one in terms of its appearance. Solomon built the first one, and he had all the money in the world, and he had the best craftsmen in the Middle East. This second temple was a very modest, cedar-lined building. The people who were alive to see the old one and still alive to see the second one just kind of shook their heads and said, doesn't really compare. So how could Haggai say that the second temple would be more glorious? Because 500 years later, a young couple from Nazareth came walking into that temple holding their eight-day-old firstborn male child. 
And they were there to dedicate that child to the Lord in obedience to the law of Moses. And as they went through that holy ceremony, an old man named Simeon who'd been essentially living in the temple for years, praying that he might live to see God's Messiah, came upon that couple and grabbed that child and held him up to the Lord and said, Lord, now I can die in peace because the Savior has come. God in human flesh entered that temple. Haggai's prophecy came true because he knew Here comes salvation. God become flesh who would grow up to not just raise the dead, not just heal the sick, not just preach powerful words, but actually lay down His life for you and for me. Stand in our place, taking upon Himself the sin of the world, dying so that we wouldn't have to, rising again the third day and then saying, come join me. Come join me and let's change the world. So consider your ways. Don't you want to be a part of a movement like that? A palace on earth is nice. If you can have one, enjoy it. Invite me over for lunch. I'd love it. Far, far better to build up the house of God.